0: Hey, what's up, everybody? Happy Friday or Saturday or Sunday or Monday. I don't know what day you're listening to this, but whatever day it is, hope it's a great day for you. Quick note before we get started for today's show, I want to tell you about the growth we've been seeing with this show and with Lions of Liberty Pride. Um, We're having some of the best download numbers we've ever had, and that is all thanks to you guys, thanks to our new listeners from our advertising on the Reason Roundtable and the growth we've seen in the Lions of Liberty Pride, which you can join by going to patreon.com slash liberty. we are now over our goal of $1,500 per month, which gets us to really doing the Libertarian National Convention the right way, getting a videographer there to document everything, put out great content, interviews, video, all that stuff. For you guys to enjoy. So we're not stopping here. We want to keep going. Uh, the next goal is two thousand dollars a month. So please help us to get there. Uh, you can do that by joining us for as little as five dollars per month. Actually, as little as two dollars per month, you can get access to our Facebook group. If you want bonus content and all that good stuff, you gotta give us at least five per month to get that. So please join us at the Lions of Liberty Pride patreon.com slash lions of liberty.
1: Welcome to Felony Friday, a presentation of the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your
0: host, John Odermatt. Felons, friends, and freedom lovers, welcome back to another edition of Felony Friday, a weekly show right here on the Lions of Liberty podcast. What is Felony Friday? Felony Friday is a show where every single week we're going to do a deep dive and we're going to examine and expose injustice in the broken criminal justice system. Now, if this is your first time listening to Felony Friday, your first time listening to any of the shows we have here on Lions of Liberty, sit back, relax, enjoy the show, put your feet up. If you're driving, please don't put your feet up. But if you've been back several times, if this is a regular habit of listening, Why haven't you subscribed? Or maybe you have subscribed. Thank you if you subscribe. But if you haven't, please do so. Whatever podcasting app you're listening on, please just scroll up to the top there, punch that subscribe button, and uh, you'll get every single episode of the Lions of Liberty podcast and of Felony Friday delivered to your little listening device. And also, if you really enjoy what you're hearing here, please think about uh, giving us a a five-star rating and a review. On uh, Apple Podcast, especially if you listen there, because it helps with the algorithms and all that crazy stuff. Without further ado, let's get rolling with today's show. All right, so I am here with Kale Lamerts. He is one of our Nittany level uh, Pride Lions of Liberty Pride members, and at that level. You get to uh, essentially produce a show. I don't remember the, the terminology that, that Mark used in the actual uh, wording on Patreon, but essentially, uh, Kale's been at the level, and uh, we rotate about one person a month that comes on either my show, Felony Friday, or Mark's show, or Brian's show, Electric Liberty Land, and gets to uh, talk about something they're passionate about. So, Kale, welcome to Felony Friday.
1: Hey, how's it going, man?
0: Good to have you here, man. And, uh, you know, we, we talked a lot about you know what you wanted to do with this show, and the show's already been recorded we're recording this intro after the fact, but I wanted to kind of set it up, and what we're going to focus on here is policing, but more specifically, some of the content this interview is is talking about really how to talk to police and uh, I know you're particularly passionate about that, and I thought maybe at the beginning here if you could kind of share. You know, just kind of, I guess, first of all, just policing in general, why is that something you're interested in and uh, specifically, you know, how to interact with police in the best way in order to get the best outcome?
1: Well, um, I've had a significant amount of interactions with the police officers in my, in my life and uh, most of them haven't gone well. And a lot of it was the cop's attitude, but I think a lot of it was also how I interacted with them. You know, I didn't take the time to escalate it or try to have a conversation with them. You know, it was just combative the whole time. And I think that's a that's the wrong way to go at an interaction with a police officer. Um, I think there's a time and a place to be combative. But I think if you see them as a human first, instead of a police officer and Mm -hmm. go into it as someone whose mind you can change, or at least get them to think, I think it's time worth, worth spending. And uh, I think we have to change everybody's mind, right? I mean, that's, the, that's the whole idea. We have to get the cops on board with the idea that they're violating people's rights.
0: Right. Yeah. That's a great point. And I think that's a good sort of kickoff here. Cause that's, one of the things that uh, John, my, my guest today, John Beza, that we talked about qu- quite a bit is he was trying to do that a little bit from inside the force, but hopefully maybe some police officers currently still working can hear this and um, start to you know change their minds and implement some of the things that John talked about. So with that being said, let's get to the interview and we'll be back here at the end to get some more thoughts from Kale. On today's episode of Felony Friday, we welcome John Beza to the show. And I first heard of John, or actually, I was just talking with John before the show here. I heard of him, he was on Tom Woods originally, and I remember his appearance on that show. Heard of him more recently. He was a guest on Pete Quinonez's Free Man Beyond the Wall podcast. Uh, where specifically they got into something that uh is of interest to me, and I know of interest to our audience, is uh a part of his career in law enforcement where uh, he tried to act as a libertarian cop, and he's written an article about that. It's on lourockwell.com. I'll link to that on the show notes page, and uh, we'll get into John's career uh, prior to that, and he worked for a long time in New York City and many different capacities in, uh, in law enforcement. So, John, welcome to Felony Friday.
2: Well, thank you. Thank you for having me here.
0: Well, thank you for coming on the show and carving some time out of out of your day. I, I know you're retired, but uh, I, I know that even retired people are very busy. So, so thank you so much. No problem. Um, just to kind of set the table here before we get into really the the Lou Rockwell article and uh, some of the things you talked about on on Pete's show, um, I really want to dig into. I'm always interested in. You know why people choose certain careers, you know what what attracts them to do certain things. So starting sort of at the beginning here, what first you know motivated you to to go into law enforcement?
2: Well, I was motivated by family, my not not that they motivated me, I was motivated by them. My both my grandfathers were New York City police officers. One was a lieutenant, and they had retired. One had passed away, one was still living. And when when I was about 15 or so, I did a lot of reading, read a lot of cop books, a lot of New York City cop books. And I said to myself, you know, this is what I want to do. My father was a New York City fire lieutenant, but I didn't want to be a fireman. I wanted for some reason. I just had read books about cops. I want to be a cop. I want to be like my grandfathers. So I uh, that's the the area that I wanted to go in. But uh, it turns out that after high school, uh, I was. 18 years old and they, they don't take you as a cop till you're 20. So what I did was I had taken a test for New York state correction officer. You know, that's like mm-hmm. a, a prison guard, people call it, but uh, unfortunately so because they, they don't get a lot of credit. and They do some good work. But um, I, I graduated high school like June 23rd on July 31st. I was in the correction Academy and a couple weeks later I was working in Sing Sing Prison, maximum security prison. It's about 20 miles north of the Bronx. And, uh, you know, at any moment, I would be, it would be myself and maybe 187 cells, 87 inmates uh, on one, what we call a tier, like levels, you know, like a floor, one Mm -hmm. story. It would be about five, six stories tall. And um, so I went into that work. And I have to tell you that I was scared to death every minute of every moment that I was in there. Uh, you know, I was, uh, a, a young kid doing that. Um, I'm
0: curious, uh, what was your, cause I've heard from other people in corrections that you're sort of just kind of thrown to the wolves. Was there, do you feel like you were adequately prepared? Were you trained or what was that like?
2: No, we were thrown to the wolves. Uh, I just happened to have a couple of good correction officers that had some time around me, most of whom went on to be cops, uh, but. You know, try to do something else. But I, I was proud of my time as a correction officer because I, I think we did some good work. I didn't see any uh, instances of brutality in front of me. I'm not saying there weren't, mm-hmm. but with my group, we were, it was really tight, and it was, uh, it was a really, really difficult job. It was just as difficult as a police job. So I, you know, I hear some police officers they kind of talk down about correction officers. I would never do that. I've been one, so I know it's a very difficult job. Uh so but I took it and guess I'll be honest with you, the two and a half years that I spent there, the pension time counted up front for the police department. So in other words, I didn't have to do 20 years with the police department. I only had to do, you know, whatever, 17 and a half
0: okay. years.
2: So spent some time I spent some time there, two two and a half years. And then uh, my number came up, I went on to the police department, and immediately I was assigned to the uh, 32nd Precinct in Harlem, which per capita at the time was the most dangerous precinct probably in the country. It was less than one square mile, and we'd have about maybe 70, 80 homicides a year in less uh, than one square mile.
0: What decade was this?
2: This was in the 80s and then early 90s. Yeah. So it was a very, very violent, violent place. Um, I'll still tell you the jail was violent too. But being out there, the first time I actually, they brought me on a tour of the precinct, they said, okay, come on, we'll go get in the car and we'll take you around. Uh, First thing we did was get involved in a a gunfight. You could smell the cordite in the air. And I was like, what did I get myself into? I mean, I had no, I was like, what? I was still young, you know, I'm like, I'm 20 years old. I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, so um uh, you know i worked i worked in Harlem a very very different the 3-2 precinct we called it the tomb of gloom mm-hmm. and it 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 was the tomb of gloom it was very scary every day um uh, and then uh, after a while i decided that i wanted to get out do something else i met somebody who was in narcotics who was an undercover undercover real undercover meaning taking away your id uh they scratch you off the You know, the magazine list, the police department magazine that they give out. You don't get that. You don't you only get your paycheck, really. Mm -hmm. Uh, And a guy was talking to me about it. And I said, you know what? At that point, I was not libertarian at all. I was Mm -hmm. invocated. And I said, that sounds cool. And plus, you get your detective shield in 18 months if you do that. That's faster than normal because it's a dangerous. It's the most dangerous job in the police department undercover. So inculcated me, you know, I, I took it and I did it and I, I can't believe it, but I actually did very well. at it. I mean, people will look at me and say, come on, I'll tell you what, I made hundreds and hundreds of buys, uh, you know, acting as a criminal or mm-hmm. I, I don't consider criminals anymore. There's, you know, people have to excuse me here. Cause I'm telling the story, but right. I, I, right. right. But, but, when I go back on it now, I'm, I'm not, I'm ashamed of what I did, but at the time I was good at it and I did it for three years, uh, until my last, the last buy I made, I had a gun put to my head. Uh, I was making a $16,000 buy of heroin and, um, uh, I didn't have my own gun on me because anytime you go into an apartment with somebody who is a drug dealer, they're going to pat you down. So, I don't, I know my gun works. You know, we had, we had guns that were not official police guns. So I had like a Walter PPK, you know, but I knew my gun worked. So I, I never took my gun inside to an inside place because they pat you down. So when I went up there, this guy, he didn't even, I didn't, we didn't even get into an apartment. He turned around and said, this is the end of the line for you. He used an expletive and he put the gun right up to my head and I knew it was a real gun. I can feel it. I could see it. And, uh, while that struggle was happening, I knew that he couldn't shoot me, you know, facing me. I knew he, he kept asking me to turn around, telling me, turn around, turn around. And I wouldn't turn around. I, I knew, I just knew, you know, that he was going to blow my head, he was going to blow my brains in this, uh, all over this tenement in Harlem. So I, uh, we had a little struggle. He ran down the stairs. I chased after him. Before I could even get to him, he hopped in a car. Somebody was waiting for him. And he took off. Anyway, long story short, they did catch him. They got some of the buy money back, which was, of course, the chief was most interested in not my, my, my not how I was doing, but how his buy money was doing, you know, because <laughs> heaven forbid they lose money, you know. Yeah. So I had, I had actually stashed some money in my socks, you know, because this is how, you know, you get into the mentality, you know, of how you're a drug buyer and so forth. So I actually saved them some money because I stuffed some in my socks and stuff like that. But I gave most of the money, not my money. I didn't, you know, I didn't want to be killed right then and there over it. But uh, right. anyway, that, that turned me, though, that incident. As soon as that was over, instantly, I did not want to make another buy. I said to myself, why am I putting my life on the line or others are putting their life on the line for something that somebody just wants to put into their body? That just came into my head like, you know, I don't, I don't know exactly why. I didn't mm-hmm. read any book to prompt that, but it came into my head, and then, um, then of course, what happens is they after that uh, I was transferred to the Manhattan North Major Case uh, Narcotics Major Case Unit where we worked on Dominican and Colombian drug gangs, and I did not want to do that, so I made myself the uh, what he called the, the equipment man, you know, and I got equipment for the guys and stuff, and I just did mm-hmm. not want any part of it, and then I went up to my lieutenant. Uh, I was told I was going to be tr- transferred, but I had done so well, and I hate to say that here, but you know, I had done so well in narcotics that they wanted to transfer me to the Drug Enforcement Task Force, which you know is one of these task forces. You get credit cards, you get a BMW, you don't have to pay the tolls, and for cops, that's important. If you don't pay the toll, that's the thing, right? But um, so I, I knew I, I got word that I was going to be transferred there, and I went up to my lieutenant. And I said, we call him Lou in the police department. I said, Lou, I'm supposed to get transferred in two weeks to the task force. Uh, I don't want to go there. And he said to me, he said, you know what? Nobody has ever denied going to the task force. Nobody has ever ever turned it down, ever. (laughs) Well, who would, right? I mean, Uh, unless you were libertarian in your mind. But this this was just starting with me. But uh, he said, nobody's ever turned it down. He says, but you work very hard for me. Where do you want to go? And, you know, I knew his brother was the chief of the province. So wherever I wanted to go, I could go. But I had already chosen in my mind where I was going to go. I didn't pick any sweet place. I picked special, the Manhattan Special Victim Squad, where we mm-hmm. work with just with victims. That's what I wanted. Real people victims. Not, not the, we used to put on the complaint report. People stayed in New York. I didn't want that. I wanted somebody's name or, you know, whatever to be up there. I wanted to be a victim of crime.
0: That's that's amazing. I just want to revisit that. I know you said that you can't really pinpoint exact. well, you can pinpoint the time it happened, but like not really. It's not like you, because it's so often like this, this big philosophical change, you read a book and your changes, your whole worldview, but to have it happen in an instant like that, when you had that buy go sideways and to switch all the way around to realize that these aren't victims, but you actually want to defend real victims. That's just an incredible story.
2: Well, it is. And, and I, won't, I won't, I won't, I won't. I do, I do will tell you that I did read one, one book on libertarianism. And that was Rothbard's For a New Liberty.
0: Yeah. And I'm in
2: afraid. that, that was, I read that while I was in the major case unit. And in that book, he mentions the precinct that I worked on because on, just make it real quick, mm-hmm. on that precinct, on that same block, they had to hire security guards because there was so much crime on the precinct block. My car actually parked in front of the precinct, got broken into like three times. And uh, we had uh, two shootings in the hallway of the precinct, the lobby. So it was a, I mean, it really was, it was a very, very violent precinct, but Mm
0: -hmm. uh,
2: I, I took my time as an equipment man. And I actually, I don't know where I found the book. There was no Amazon then. I can't remember, but I knew for new Liberty by Murray Rothbard. And maybe maybe that's where some of the ideas came from. I'll, I'll, I'll give that credit um, because, I, I you know, I'm not smart enough probably to make these have these thoughts on my own. But I think the book helped a little bit. And I, I think it well, I think it helped a lot. And, and I knew that, you know, I, I wanted it to I wanted to help somebody. I wasn't doing that in narcotics. So I guess maybe that was it, too.
0: So, so let me let me ask you this. This is a question I, I told you at the top of the show that I'm going to be sprinkling sprinkling in questions from uh, our uh, our patron, uh, Kale Lamberts, who helped to produce this show. And, you know, playing off that change you had where you sort of your world, your view is shifting of what a police officer should focus on at that time did you start to question openly or maybe not openly, maybe just sort uh, of sort of keep silently your fellow officers and their morals and ethics and what they were doing?
2: I, I, when I was in the major case unit and um, I was the equipment man, there were times where I would openly question it. And there, at the same time, everybody would say to me, you are going to need to send you to psych services if you think you're going to legalize drugs. You know, we have our mm-hmm. own the police department has his own psychological services has his own dentist, believe it or not. So yeah, yeah, I went to the department dentist one time. So anyway, uh, they, you know, they made a, a kind of, they kind of joked at it. You know, nobody was serious. Mm-hmm. I got a good reputation, but they were like, you're crazy, you know? And then I just kind of said, oh, I'll keep this low profile until I get to special victims. Um, when I got there, I was open about it and I actually had a bunch of guys when I say a bunch, maybe a, maybe half dozen out of out of twenty, so many guys, mm-hmm. I had them agree with me that the drug war was ridiculous. It just took a little persuading, but so I did. I did question it. I did, but I did it after I got the special victims. I wanted to get there first, you know. <laughs>
0: right, right. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, I mean, you, you probably. I mean, you have that. It's a it's a herd mentality, and. Unless you know somebody like yourself steps out, when that happens, it gives a little bit of space, a little bit of room for someone else to maybe say, you know what, I, I think you're right. I, I can see something there. So, and maybe that's what we need more of in uh, in policing. I don't know I mean, is that is that something where do you think that? And I know we're going to talk about later. You moved to Florida and sort of more morally more practicing uh, libertarian policing, but um, do you think that? a way, a mechanism to change policing really has to happen from inside the police force.
2: Yeah, it has to, it has to happen from the top to the bottom, from the bottom to the top, because if you, if every, every, every police department and every sheriff's office in this country deals with task force and like drug task force and stuff like Mm -hmm. that. So, and it means money for them. It's a money-making thing. So somehow, some way we have to get away from that. Now I am not com- sitting here telling you I'm an expert on that, but it has to come from within the department because if the department supports a body count, basically go out there and arrest fifty guys for selling crack or cocaine on the street, and we need bodies. That's that's to me that was ridiculous. So when I would talk to other cops on a personal basis, one-on-one basis, um, after I had left narcotics. Uh, Pretty much, uh, I, I, most of them, I never got any arguments. Most of them actually would agree. They would be kind of forced to agree when I would, ha- you know, ask them specific questions and make points, you know. Mm-hmm. So, but, but it, you're right. It has to happen from within the department. Maybe it has to happen without the, from without the department to push these people out. But we need a new mentality. We have a, a militarized police now, you know, because mm-hmm. of the drug war. And this is just horrible. That's just it makes me sick.
0: Um, before we get to talking about your your time in Florida, I just want to revisit talk a little more about this, your experience within a, in the uh, special victims unit. So, how many years d- did you spend there? Um, what were some some notable notable memories that, oh. that stick out to you?
2: I spent uh, at least uh, six years there, uh, and uh, at one point, I had broken my leg and in two two spots in the department. I retire, that's when I retired. But I had spent six, six years there. I worked on a case that's still unsolved to this day that still bothers me. I had 16 victims, most of them connected with DNA. And um, I treated all my victims, every single victim I had, black, white, male or female, I had male victims too. I treat them as if they were my mother, my brother, my sister, my son, whatever the case may be. And I found that that, my, I found a partner who felt the same way and I found that that was the way to really, um, to really solve these cases. Now, obviously the one with the 16 rapes I didn't solve. I mean, I put, we put tons and tons of man hours into it and it, it didn't get solved, but I solved a lot of other serial rape cases and you know, that it, it gave me a certain satisfaction because especially when I interviewed people, I knew back then what a coerced confession was, you know, because I've seen it w- w- with some other detectives. But mm-hmm. myself and my partner, we didn't work like that. So we wanted the right guy because why get the wrong guy? You, the right guy is going to be out there, you know, uh, victimizing women, children, whatever. So we would go and we would get the confession. We get the right guy. Uh, I, I Like I said, I put... My whole, really my whole life in police department in that little six year period, I, that's where I studied. I went to the New York Academy of Medicine Library to study about rapists, about, I learned everything about uh, uh, autopsies and stuff just in case, which I did work on some sexual homicides. Those came up. I want to know everything about it so that I could, I could, uh, I could solve these crimes for mostly the women, mostly they were women. So most of these women, I wanted to, to solve it for them. they looked to me, you mm-hmm. know, to solve the case. And I took it to heart, you know, I took it to heart. I worked five, 600 hours overtime. And I, uh, that's what really broke up my family. You know, I thought I said to myself, well, I'm, I'm a good guy. I'm not cheating on my wife. Like I'm, the 50% of cops cheat on their wives. Well, I wasn't cheating on my wife, but I really was. With the police department, it was my mistress. I was working so hard with these cases, mm-hmm. and uh, it kind of broke up my family. But uh, that's that's the but that's the that's what you need in you. You could balance it better than I did. I, I just did a poor job of balancing it. That's what you need in your heart is to know that you're going to work for the victim, that they're paying you your salary,
0: mm-hmm. and I don't
2: care if it's a poor woman from Harlem or a rich woman from the Upper East Side, they're going to get the same duty of care from me uh, that, you know, that I could, uh, the the most I could give them. And my partner was the same way.
0: Did you have, uh, I mean, because, you know, you you hear that, uh, you know, a lot of funding is, police funding is directed to fighting the war on drugs. Did you have, you know, the funding you needed, the resources you needed to, Really perform your job, or do you feel like you were constrained there?
2: We didn't have the resources to do. We had when I was there, we had twenty-two detectives and to, to handle five thousand rape cases and child abuse cases a year. Twenty-two detectives at the same time, just in Manhattan North, there were over three hundred detectives working in narcotics. Hmm. Well, I had a, a you know a caseload where you know here's a, a woman raped with a, a broken bottle. There's a child burned with a, a, a you know, uh, 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 iron uh, or whatever. These brutal cases, I would have to kind of shuffle them, and I'd work on it. You know, and I, I, I thought I did a pretty good job of my clearance rate. I always kept it up there. But I'll tell you, what was difficult for me, and it was it got it got maddening to me in the end, was that I'm handling all these horrible cases, and they got hundreds detectives working on buying bus buying a vial crack, which I've done. Hundreds of times, you know, and I thought to myself, this is absolutely ridiculous. And they didn't give us the resources. Uh, it was I was there until a time where when I worked up in Harlem, if I had a rape in Harlem, nobody cared. Nobody cared. But there came a time where a new police commissioner came in and I was actually surprised that all of a sudden I got what I needed. You know, I didn't get the, the 300 detectives, but I got the manpower. I got stuff that I needed to work on cases up in Harlem. Right. You know, rather than the Upper East Side. So that that helped out a lot. And that was Commissioner Bratton. I know there's we could have a whole show about him, but uh, he did come in there and he did give uh, he did give a good measure of uh, uh, support to us in cases that happen in the ghetto areas.
0: Well, that's good. So well, it's you, only it's one good thing. Yeah. <laughs> it was, so it sounds like he was a, a complicated uh complicated guy.
2: <laughs> he was. He stuck, but he 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 did a he what he did was he held people accountable and he, he did drop the crime rate in New York. I mm-hmm. will we'll give him credit for that.
0: So after your time as special victims, you said you you got injured and you retired and then you went to Florida, or yeah. how much time?
2: Uh, a couple of years, and I d- I decided I need to get some money. I had to pay some child support
0: mm-hmm.
2: and uh, stuff like that. So I went to Florida and uh, applied for a job at the sheriff's office, and uh, they took me. No, my leg was broken and all. They took me. I said, oh, yeah, you can work." So I worked in Florida and in the sheriff's office. Uh, I'd say a medium sized one, close to large. And um, it was just to me; it was totally different in New York. In New York, you always had a partner. You always somebody. You, I, I work wherever I worked. It was close, you know, close knit. Mm-hmm. And also, the sergeants were on you. Everybody's on you here. I had everything to myself. It was like, well, I don't like to say a playground because that doesn't sound good. <laughs> but it was like, well, it was a libertarian playground. How's that? How's yeah. that libertarian yeah. playground for me because once, only once. Every two weeks, would I have to see my sergeant? And um, once every two weeks, I'd have to see my sergeant. So, I he wouldn't bother me too much because I made arrests. And what I did was I made felony arrests. I would I would never arrest for drugs. I never made one drug arrest. I never gave out a, 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 a any type of ticket, including a speeding ticket. I never got never gave out a speeding ticket in my life. Period. That's
0: amazing.
2: In, in Harlem, they don't. You know they don't give you the training to go and chase people down with you've got too much else going you got men with guns and things so we never I never got trained with that, and I never wanted to so <laughs> I didn't uh so I didn't give out any tickets at all uh, but what I did was I decided I said you know what'm I'm, I'm not going to make drug arrests I'm going to make felony arrests, domestic violence if I have to make them, you have to make those in terms but I did the investigation on it so uh, what was surprising to me in that was, there was, I had about 50% male and 50% female would go to jail in my time there, my three years for, um, for domestic violence. But I would do a real investigation while I was on the scene, mm-hmm. you know, so I'd work on that and I use my detective skills, but I wouldn't bother anybody. I didn't let anybody know that like I'm from New York. I, did, I just kept my mouth shut, made my arrest. And then what I, what I found what's happening is the sheriff's office, their warrant squad worked 9 a.m. to 5 p.m., Monday to Friday. Now, you're not catching anybody 9 a.m. to 5 p.m., Monday to Friday. You just don't do it. So they weren't getting too many warrants. So I had I found out how to use a computer quick, and I uh, would look up warrants. And people mm-hmm. who were wanted for no, no drugs, but felony, burglary, robbery, rape, murder, whatever the case may be. I had to be a felony, and I had to be a victim crime, no victimless crimes at all. And I would write the list down before I went to work, and then you're busy. You know, you're busy in Florida in a different way than New York. You're not going to gun runs all the time. You're going to somebody's sprinkler is going on somebody's lawn, and they don't like it, or you know, you got these. Little issues you go on.
0: I guess it depends on what part of Florida you're in because you hear some, some crazy stories come well, out of Florida. <laughs>
2: we, we, had, we had some shootings, and I've been on uh, – I, I had an I arrested somebody for attempted murder, so there was stuff that was going on. But the, it, by 2 o'clock in the morning, everything was silent, not like in New York City where the radio kept going. Right. So I said, well, you know what? What am I going to do? I'm getting paid, so let me go out. I I have my list of these guys I knock on a door inevitably, inevitably, they were home. I tell them, "Us, I got to put you under arrest. You got to see the judge. And half the time, they're half asleep. They're like, okay, put the hand behind the back. I never, ever had one struggle or a problem getting the guy arrested on a warrant like that. I don't care how bad the crime was that they did or whatever. I never had a problem. And I remember one time, I think I took three or four in. One time, I, the whole back of my – in New York, we didn't have our own police cars. We had cars with graffiti on them and everything else. But down here, you get a nice police car, you know, for yourself. Mm-hmm. So I kept mine all nice, you know, but I had three guys. I'd put three guys in the back seat handcuffed. And then I'd have another guy to arrest. I'd have to have another car take them in and take them to the booking area, you know, and, uh, and get them booked. But that's what I would do. I would do the. So my arrest rate turned out to be the second highest in the district that I was working. The highest so what,
0: what did your of, boss think about that? What, I mean, did you, were you getting a lot of notoriety from uh, your... No, the,
2: the, the boss had told me, he said, listen, um, you know, people from the major crime section are talking about you because you're doing their work for them. Like I took, I, one day on my day off, I went down, it was two, 20 minutes away. I took a picture of a guy who was a rape suspect and they were able to use it in the thing. So they, they had talked about me, but it was very quiet. And nobody talked to me about it. My sergeant was actually pretty good. That was good. And he knew that I read. I read The other thing is I was always on top of the law, just like in New York. Always reading the law, the updates to the law, so that I knew that I was obviously within the law. I had probable cause. I knew what all that was about, uh, how to do a show up, a lineup, a photo array. Mm-hmm. You know, I did a photo array one time, which is a six pack of photos, you know. And they do it on a computer when I was there. They did it on a computer. And I was doing it. And I had another cop come over to me. He said, what is that? I said, what do you mean, what is that? It's a photo array. The guy goes, I never saw anything like that before. I said, you never did a photo array before? So these guys, you know what I'm saying? It was a different mindset. But I just, Mm. hey, boom. So I was doing the best I could. I would have people, sometimes people would have drugs on them. If they did, I'd say, listen, throw them down in in a ditch or somewhere that they they would go away, because you know you have to also remember that I gotta be on the lookout because I might have you know other cops looking at me. That's the other thing. Mm-hmm. But most of these people, they throw down whatever drugs they had, and I say, "Come here to the car." And I I have all my I'd have the the wanted posters plus anything that I wanted, like anything that I had a case because I had some open cases, and I would deal with them. My sergeant let me deal with my killing cases, so I would deal with them. And I would ask people, do you know this guy? or Do you know what's going on over here? Yeah, you know what? And Once in a while, you know, it's not every time, but once in a while I would get somebody to say, you know what, I know that guy, and this is where he lives at, and thanks for, you know, not arresting me. And I'd be like, okay, boom. So, I mean, it's not the perfect libertarian Mm -hmm. thing to do, but to to stay within, you know, to at least keep myself going, that's, that's what I did.
0: He's taking a real quick ad break here. One of our Lions of Liberty Pride members, Tyler Colford, he reached out to me and he recently upgraded to our $100 level where he gets an ad. And uh, he decided to use this ad today because he has a special message for you out there. He wanted me to let you all know that he's in the Long Walks Through the Woods, he's in the comic books, Graham Hancock novels, video games, and Austrian economics. And if you're into some of those same things, then check out his rap group Jinx Inc. It's available on all streaming platforms. I was just listening to his song "Bootstraps" on Spotify, so check out "Bootstraps." Check out Jinx Inc. That's J Y N X I N C. J Y N X I N C. Jinx Inc. Check it out. Yeah, that's that's a good point. I mean, yeah, a lot of libertarians might push back and say, well, you're, you're throwing their drugs away or whatever. But I mean, what else can you do? Otherwise, well, you're going to end up getting fired. Um, but, and I so, wouldn't be
2: out there as a libertarian cop. So right. I had to, you know, people have to understand there were certain things that, you know, I... I I, of course I wouldn't do any unlawful order and I definitely would not make a drug arrest. I would even, I would deny it. If they suspended me, I would be suspended. I always decided that, but that never happened. But I was always concerned, you know, if other cops saw me telling somebody to throw drugs down, you know, they flip out, you know, a bag of marijuana to them is a big thing. You know, to me, I was like, geez, we used to go out on buys for marijuana. They tell us buy marijuana. We walk down the street, there'd be a hundred people selling, and we'd, we'd come out the end of the street and tell the boss, listen, nobody's selling. There's nobody, no undercover in his right mind. Now, I know this sounds weird, but no undercover in his right mind. He's buying cocaine. I was buying kilos. I was buying guns. He's going to buy a, a little bag of marijuana. So, mm-hmm. but down here, you know, this, this that was a big thing. You know, a couple bags of marijuana. Oh, I got marijuana. I'm like, ugh. I, I just, anyway, I stayed away from that stuff completely. So, so,
0: were you able when you were down in Florida, were you able to influence any of your fellow uh, fellow officers there to <clears throat> to lean libertarian in any way?
2: You know what, I I didn't, and and one of the reasons I have to tell you this is because I I when you're working by yourself, all you can do is trust yourself. You don't have a partner that you work with for years, you know.
1: So mm-hmm.
2: I didn't know by telling somebody something if that would all of a sudden have people looking at me. And all of a sudden, I get in trouble for doing something, you know, that's libertarian. So I, I, I kind of kept it to myself. I mean, people must—I thought people must have noticed, but I, I tell you today, if you ask anybody I work with, they probably wouldn't know that I never made a drug arrest, and they probably wouldn't know that I never wrote a ticket. Yeah, you know? mm-hmm. uh, but you know, because I just kept my mouth shut. I think that was the only way I could do it. If I if I let on to somebody else, I was wor- I would I was the influence of somebody else could come back to haunt me. And then you would have no libertarian cop out there. So or partial libertarian cop.
0: So what happened in, uh, in Florida then at the end, you mean? Yeah.
2: (laughs) (laughs) At the end. I resigned honorably, but what happened was they, one day I was called in to the Lieutenant's office and I was asked by the Lieutenant. No, Hey, I, I asked the Lieutenant, I said, Oh, Lou. I call him Lou. And I said, Lou, why, what's going on? And, you know, cause I couldn't imagine why he called me. And he said, well, it's about your arrest. No, no, he didn't say it's about, I'm sorry. He says, it's about your tickets. And I said, well, I don't write tickets to somebody in my squad that does that. They have the speedometer, the speed, whatever they call radar. <laughs> you know, I don't even know what it's called. Right. <laughs> so would, they, 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 he would use that. And um, just on a side note, I got to tell you something funny that's in the article, but some people mm-hmm. might not know is that that guy who was our ticket man who had the radar, I would find out every night that I could when I had a little time where he was hidden, you know, because they always hide themselves, right? So they got a hiding mm-hmm. spot. And then I would go down, like maybe below a hill where he couldn't see me at all. And then I'd sit, I'd put all my lights on and I'd sit there. And all the other cars, of course, would slow down. And I'd sit there for as long as I could. And then you know, I'd put my lights off and then in the morning, sometimes we'd have to get together, put our paperwork in. He would be yelling about how what well, I can't get any speeding tickets. I can't get any you know, speed t-. and I just look at him like, Oh wow, you know, and, and not know you know, not knowing that here I am with my lights yeah.
0: on. That's but, a, that's a that's a good libertarian thing to do. If oh, there's I any cops that. out there listening who are thinking about yeah. what can I do to be, you know, a little bit libertarian, I think. I think it's a good start, right? There. That's
2: that's a good start. There's nothing wrong with that, and I yeah. I did that, and he was he didn't know it was me, and uh, I didn't really care. But uh, but anyway, the, the lieutenants there are asking me about this, so I said, well, this guy does the tickets. We got mm-hmm. somebody who does, uh, you know, goes on all calls. There's somebody who does this. We have, you know, I my specialty was making arrests, and I was number two in arrests behind the DWI guy, who, you know whatever. I don't know if they chased them out of bars. I don't know. I didn't do DWIs either. So that wasn't my thing. My thing was if you had a DWI, get somebody to pick you up, park your car here. I got to see it. And then you're gone. Well, as long as there's no accident, there's an accident, then traffic mm-hmm. guys taken. So anyway, that was my attitude towards that too. But his, the Lieutenant's attitude was, where's your tickets? And I, I told them, I was truthful with them. I said, Lieutenant, I haven't filled out a ticket since I've been here. I don't plan to. And quite frankly, I don't even know how to fill out, properly fill out the ticket form, the summons form. I don't even know how to fill it out, if you ask me. I said, it's not my thing. So he's like, well, you got to write, you know, the typical stuff that he would say. You got to write tickets. We got to, come on, that's part of your job. So I make arrests, you know, felony arrests. I'm making arrests. Sometimes I'm bringing in shotguns, you know, robberies. I was bringing, I remember bringing in shotguns and stuff, and people are looking at me, but I'm just like, well, whatever, no problem. But that didn't count. Who oh, cares about the violent felonies on other people? We want tickets. So they switched my tour to, I was working 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. Now they switch it to a day shift, 6 a.m. to 6 p.m., you know? Mm-hmm. Which I didn't want because it's not there's not a lot of activity going on then, and they assigned a sergeant to like look after me and I'm like, is this what I get for what you know that's what I was thinking so I didn't I didn't act like I knew what to do so I just a- after a while I just it took a couple months and I just resigned honorably and I said you know turn my stuff in and thank you you know thank you for working mm-hmm. here it was, it was nice working with you kind of thing and I resigned honorably but. I couldn't do it anymore. I just couldn't. And I I could have probably waited it out, maybe gone to become a detective, but down in Florida, you know, no offense. Well, there's no Florida cops listening to this. I hope there are, but (laughs) I don't know, but I'm going to tell, I'll I'll be honest with you. It's, it was different in Florida. I mean, guys just didn't, I don't know that people just didn't know the proper ways to do things. I mean, Uh, I asked the guy one time, how do you do a show up? There's a certain procedure when, okay, I'll be quick here. Somebody commits a crime. Let's say somebody supposedly robbed somebody at gunpoint. Mm -hmm. If you, now the victim gives a description. If you find a guy who matches that description, okay, you got to now have to bring the victim to where that guy is because that guy, he still has rights, right? He's not, he's not the, a perpetrator at this point. Right. So you have to bring her to, so I would scramble it out. And I would say, listen, put him aside. It's, it's got to be in handcuffs. You put him aside, far away from the car as you can. Stand back from him and let the victim view, blah, blah, blah. Well, but people were like, what are you doing? I said, this is, a, a sh- it's called a show up. I said, this is a show up. This is what you have to do to get a good case. But I don't know. Apparently in Florida, name it not. So anyway, <laughs> it's just an example. I hope there's some cops watching this, but that's an yeah. example.
0: It's a different world in Florida in many ways. I'm it, sure. it is, and I, I'm not saying, but of course,
2: bad things happen in New York. Look at look at me. I worked in narcotics for three years and made hundreds of buys. I bought guns. And, you know, now I I'm embarrassed of that stuff. You know, and I I'm embarrassed for my profession for what it's become, and what people have let it become. You know.
0: Yeah. Um. So I have a couple more questions from Kale. You know, some of these centering around more. You know, focusing in on. Yeah you know, maybe libertarian philosophy around policing. So do you think that police officers, you know, with all the experience you have now, do you think that police officers should have lethal force as an option? Is that something they need to have? Lethal force?
2: Mm-hmm. From my experience, you're asking me?
0: Okay. Well, just, yeah, just your your opinion. I mean... My, my, op-
2: my opinion is yes. I mean, I've had guns pointed at me. I had somebody pull the trigger um, and... As he pulled the trigger, we found out later, the firing pin hit the primer, left the dimple on it. So he actually shot at me, but the bullet didn't come out. But when I got up, I, come from, I dumped, I was in a, in, a, in a Harlem alley. So I got heat, I'm full with, it's like two feet. If, if anybody's been in a Harlem alley back in the 80s and 90s, it's filled with like two or three feet of garbage. That's where people put the garbage out the back window. So I, I was running along, I cut my leg and everything. And then I got him. What happened was we went through alleys and I got him at the end of an alley. Like I had had him cornered. So as he's turning around to me, I dive down next to like, I don't know, a bunch of rubbish to try to get some cover. And as I'm coming up, I see him. So putting the gun like, you know, like he's jammed, like he's got a problem. Mm -hmm. So literally in this day and age, I could have shot him. But you know what? I'm not shooting a guy like that. I know the guy's gun is jammed. So I just ran up to him my gun, grabbed his gun. And I when I put him down to the ground, it turns out the precinct they're working in was so busy, I had already lent my handcuffs to somebody. So I had no handcuffs. So I had to hold him down with the gun at him. And he's bleeding, I'm bleeding from running through the, not from fighting, we're just bleeding from running through the valleys, you know. And I, eventually I had, and then nobody could find me. So I had to get on the radio back then, and I had to say, listen, I'm, I'm uh, in an alley. Listen to the barking dog. And finally, two housing police officers. Back then, we had housing and transit. Housing police officers came and found me, and and that and that was it. But see, I would never, me personally, I can't, but if he did shoot at me, mm-hmm. I would want to have a gun so that he could shoot back so that I could defend myself. Right. So... Yeah, uh, on a libertarian end, I would say, yes, I do believe police officers should have that option, but man, even as an expert now, I see that they use it and they use it in all the wrong ways. Almost Most of the cases I, or all the cases I reviewed are bad shootings.
0: Yeah, and I think along those same lines, I mean, when you were talking about in Florida, when you were going out and finding people, violent criminals going to their houses, you know, at 12 a.m., 2 a.m., and you were just showing up and arresting them where in a lot of the, a lot of those cases, you know, there's going to be a SWAT team that's called in to, you know, cause this whole thing. And they're throwing in uh you know, uh, flashbang grenades and burning you know, children and stuff like that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think, uh, what, what do you think about that? I mean, I know that the trend is going, seeming like it's an unstoppable train in this you know, militarized position, but how do we change that? Because it just makes – like I, I work in risk mitigation um, for a living, and it just makes logical sense to me that you would – in order to reduce your risk, in order to make things run more smoothly, uh, to keep your officers safe, to keep the people you're trying to arrest safe, to to make it the least uh, probable environment for uh, for violence to occur – that you wouldn't want to bring in the surprising attack and climb through people's windows. And um, so, no, no, how do we get out of that?
2: uh, Through it has again, it has to start uh, up above has to want to do it. You know, the police commissioners on down or the sheriffs on down, but also the training in the academy. That's the thing. When I was in the academy, uh, let me, let me just, just say briefly, one of the guys i work with he was a a genuine hero a great great cop he stopped the car one time and the guy in the car turned around and shot his partner in the belt buckle and went through to into his stomach with a 25 do you know how he got the gun back did he shoot the guy no he went over and he wrestled the gun away this is what we when we were back again i'm not i'm just saying i know i worked in a specific precinct and everything but this is what we thought was brave. You grabbed a gun from the guy. You didn't have mm-hmm. to shoot him. And guys didn't look down on you for that. Now they want to come in with the SWAT team to, to do. Or, or it would have been, it would have been a, it would have been a, a, a bad situation because you know what? Every, all cops on that scene would have probably shot that guy that shot the cop, but not the guys I work with because mm-hmm. they were trained differently. Now they train them. It looks like it, what seems to me. Even in narcotics, when we did warrants, we had a sergeant. He had one of these booming things, you know, like a, a ram mm-hmm. and a couple police officers with windbreakers on. We didn't have we, we we didn't have SWAT teams do it. Now, you know how how often it has prol- proliferated. Is the, the, the the SWAT rates have proliferated tremendously until now they do it for anything. They do it for uh Somebody showed me the other day. Uh, what was it? Basil, like you know, that you to use to cook with. I guess uh, whatever. Some mm-hmm. they, they seized that from somebody thinking it was a drug. Oh right? yeah, I've, you know, and they used the SWAT team to do it. I mean, I just I don't see it. So I, I do see it has to be training, and I do see that it has to be up top that wants it because this cop mentality that you get into. Once you get into it, like I said, it took me almost getting killed to get out of it. Once you get into it, you're inculcated into it. It's just so tough to get out of it. You need cops that, and there are, there are, I, my partner I work with now, and my business partner, he's a retired detective. He's a libertarian, but he's only started being a libertarian when he worked with me, with Ron Paul, mm-hmm. on the Ron Paul campaign. But he's fully changed now. You know, doesn't change the fact that, of what he did when he was on the job. But anyway, I do think we could, we, there is a change that we could make, but I would love to see private police forces because I would right away. I'd be like, I'll be a detective because I'll catch the guy. And then maybe more people will come to me and it can make some more money. Right. There you go. Yeah. But,
0: that's the way it should be.
2: But I, yeah, I don't think these, these SWAT and the militarized police, uh, I, I it's just a, a frame of mind that I, that needs to go.
0: Um. Last question here. What What advice would you give to civilians on interacting with police in order to, I guess, do a couple of things in order to, you know, keep themselves safe, uh, but also not, to, you know, end up in a situation where you're, you know, maybe putting yourself more to risk of, uh, of of getting arrested. So, say you get pulled over. Um. You know, what's the best way to Sort of interact with a police officer and diffuse and the situation, but not give up your rights.
2: Well, here's what I would do if I were stopped because I question it a lot of times. I, I don't quite have the traffic uh, speeding that I, what hey, my younger years had, maybe. So I don't get stopped much, but I'm a retired cop. But you know what? If I ever get stopped, I will keep my hands on the wheel and I will not take them off until the police officer sees that I have nothing in my hands. I, I mean, you know, of course, sometimes they, they always see something, but mm-hmm. I keep my hands there because I'm scared to death. If I go by a cop and now I've gotten, it's gotten so bad for with me is that I don't even like when a cop calls next to me. You know, if a sheriff car comes next, I don't go, Hey bro, or anything. I'm like, got to get away from this guy. So here's how I would say, it: if you want your safety, you have to know how much you're gonna, how much you're gonna uh, put up with, with the police mm-hmm. officer, and how much you're gonna. Once there's a thing where we call contempt of cop. You've probably heard of it before. Contempt of cop. Mm-hmm. That means anything you say that the cop doesn't like anything. Now all of a sudden that raises his level. He, he gets anger, and what we see in these police shootings often, and I I review them now, is anger is the reason. For many of these shootings of unarmed people, mm-hmm. it's anger. So what happens is if somebody, you know, starts getting into it with a cop. You know, man, I I, I don't want to say this. I, I I personally would, you know, I would challenge the cop to some degree, but I think there's a point where I know where. Okay, this is going to go bad, real bad for me. Do I want to live or do I want to die? You know that type mm-hmm. of thing. But what's scary is I can't give you a good answer. That's what's scary because I don't know what these cops see as danger anymore. I've seen, I've just looked at a case recently where two cops, two keystone cops, and I won't say where they were from, but they tried to chase somebody and they just got so mad because a real cop, another cop from another agency who was a real cop was behind them, had him on video they felt, I knew they could feel anger and humiliation. Mm-hmm. So what they did is they got out. They tried to stop him after a couple of times and they just got out and shot him. Boom, 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 boom. Jesus. Unarmed. Unarmed. Assassination. So like I said, if I give people, my, my best bet is to say, if you want to live, you know, I hate to say, I hate to say this. It's horrible to say, do as they say, you know, because that's like us giving in. But Mm -hmm. there are very, there's very good videos out there. Dwayne, uh, a guy named um, Dwayne, it's a book called The The Right to Keep Silent. Okay. And uh, there's another, there's another book out there, or there's a video out there that he does the same one. I I can't, I'm not going to run to my shelf now. I have it. I'm sorry. Okay, I'll,
0: I'll look it up and uh, yeah, put a it on the
2: show notes page. You're right to remain silent or something like that. It was a pretty good bestseller. I read that. I thought it was pretty good. That's some good stuff for people to take a look at. And this guy was an attorney. So that even helps even more, you
0: know, okay.
2: uh, than a retired cop telling you what to do. You know, but I'll tell you, yeah. I'm scared too. let people know out there. I am scared, too. And I don't like I don't like to be anywhere near cops.
0: And that, that's—I mean—that speaks volumes coming from a retired cop, because I'm sure everyone out there in the audience was—you were saying that people who, like myself, who have never been a police officer, were, were nodding along because that's exactly—I mean—an officer drives past me on the road. You know, I—I could be driving along with you know with my family, doing nothing wrong, going the speed limit, and oh, what's—you oh, just, you just tighten up. I mean, that's not the way it should be. No, it if isn't. If the the cops there are supposed to be protecting the community, and for is when you're doing absolutely nothing wrong, you're a, you know, you're, and you could say nothing wrong. A lot of the time, a lot of people get arrested. They're doing nothing wrong. There's doing something. But there's a just an arbitrary law about it. But say you're you obeying the laws, and you still have this this fear set in you. It's just uh, it's not right. It's no, not it's right, not no.
2: right, and it, and it, it embarrasses it. it. It tarnishes a complete. Uh, the complete image of what used to be peace officers and law enforcement. And I'm not saying that it was, there was never brutality. Of course there was, uh, but it uh, really, every every cop always says, you know, Hey, that's, it's a different age, but this is real. I've talked to a bunch of cops, you know, that I know, and this is a different age. This is an age of, you got to watch, whatever you do, wherever you are, you could get shot by the police. Mm -hmm. And it's getting to the point now where I'm, I'm, I'm reviewing cases and I'm reviewing cases where cops are not getting disciplined for killing unarmed people. They are still keeping their jobs and getting promoted even after a civil judgment against them. So, Mm
0: -hmm. I mean,
2: that's a a sick feeling that I have when I go in to tell the truth. I don't testify against the cop. I go on to tell the truth. Hey, this is how, you know, guy explains how it he accidentally shot his gun off. Well, that doesn't explain how you shot the guy in the back from a downward angle, you know, of 30 degrees. How do you explain that? Well, he doesn't he can't explain, it, you know, so, uh, just, it's kind of sorrowful for me. I mean, I had my, I carried my grandfather's police shield, the same number, the same shield that he had in New York. You know, it's kind of a ritual It's kind of a big thing in New York. Uh, but maybe I should have drifted off and become a fireman like my father. And uh, my uncle, by the way, who's a retired battalion chief from the fire department, he started out as a cop. And I guess he knew when the getting was good, he mm-hmm. got out real quick.
0: Well, you know, I, I, think, uh, I think the way you've gone about your career, you've set a really good example. Um, you know, I know that there are some police officers who listen to this show and maybe some more will find it. Um, specifically because I had you on. So, you know, it's it, start, it starts with uh, setting an example and then uh, other people stepping up and doing the same thing. So I think uh, you've gone about things the right way. Uh, I just want to give you a minute if there's anything you want to plug. I don't know if you, if you have any more writings you've done you want to point people towards or I anything
2: haven't, at all. I haven't written anything lately, but if people, if there are anybody out there concerned, because this gets around and, and I know your podcast gets around all over the place, because I've heard about it all over the place. <laughs> Um, I do unplug I'll plug my website, but just because of what I do. I'm an expert witness in police right. policy and procedures, shootings, police misconduct. It's nypdtruth.com. And we're in the audience now, I have to say truth has nothing to do with nine eleven, okay? <laughs> it's just NYPDtruth. truth. We picked it out because we believe in the truth. nypdtruth.com dot com. If anybody needs any services take a look at it to see what we're all about, but that's it. That's it. And I, I just hope that one day a fine profession can be brought back to what it once was or what it should have always been.
0: All right, John. Well, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. I right, hope you guys enjoyed that interview today with John Beza. Um, really, you know, a knowledgeable guy and very easy to talk to for a former police officer uh, probably because he's a libertarian but uh I, I really did enjoy getting to uh spend some time with him and uh like i said i'm back here with kale kale has listened to the interview um what, what, what were your thoughts on it
1: um i i think he's good i think uh from my research recently he's got a monopoly on the on the libertarian cop thing um so so he's kind of been making the circuits, and uh, and other cops I've talked to are people that even know cops. They they don't know anybody that behaves like that in their duties. You know that can say they didn't. You know, give anybody tickets or didn't even know how to write a ticket. Right. I think that's I think that's one of the best parts is he says he he. Did, I don't even know how to. Even yeah, if I, I wanted to, I don't know how. And I think that's <laughs> the best answer you could give to your commanding officer is, "Hey, man." I don't even know how to do that. Mm -hmm. Um, So I I think he's had a really good experience and I hope he's, he's able to, to reach other police officers. I mean, that's, that's the idea is, is to get them to think and that they don't have to just follow the orders. You know?
0: Yeah. He's, he's one of the, uh, the only one that I know about, you know, former libertarian or former, I should say libertarians who are former police officers. He's one of the only ones who really became a libertarian and you know kept serving on the force while he was a libertarian implementing some of that stuff. I've had Rayford Davis on the show before but Rayford really he was injured on the force and he's really done a lot of his activism afterwards. He didn't really do any uh, libertarian activism while he was while he was serving. At least not that I remember. Um Rayford's a listener so if I'm <laughs> wrong reach out to me Rayford. But uh, Yeah. So just to, just to dig into, you know, some of the things that uh, I know you, that you were specifically passionate about because you've had experiences in some of these circumstances, what did you think about the, you know, the answers he was giving for how to specifically deal with if you get pulled over by a police officer?
1: Um. Yeah. The fact that he said he's scared should be a sign. Uh, I mean, and, and I tell people, to, I, I basically tell people the same thing. If you get pulled over, put your hands on the steering wheel and do not move them until you are instructed to do so. That is the best way to get out alive. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was actually told by a, an ex-cop friend of mine that if you put your hands on your steering wheel, roll your window all the way down, and don't move until they ask you for something, they know you know a cop. Uh. So there's ways to signal to them that you're not going to be combative. That you know you kind of have a backdoor entry to you know to the to the club. Um, and ever since I've been doing that, I've had fairly good interactions with cops mm. right from the get go. They view me completely different as they had before. Um, so I I think it's the the main thing is to stay calm.
0: Which is maybe tough to do for some libertarians who are naturally rebellious and nonconformists and, you know, you want to stand up for your rights. But at the end of the day, you want to live. I mean, that's that's number one for me when I get pulled over. And like you, when, when John said that, that he is scared, even when it's a cop drives past him, he gets that same fear that I get. And, you know, I can't even imagine, you know, the, I, I'm, I'm a white guy and I get that fear. I mean, there's the, the, right. the emotions that, uh, you know, African-Americans and, uh, you know, other people of color experience. It's, it's crazy. Absolutely out of control.
1: Yeah. I mean, I've, I've had very bad interactions with the cops. I mean, I've been arrested for failure to show ID when the cop was holding my driver's license. Um, <laughs> so how how does that happen? Um, he, when he initially came in, I was at a bar with a group of friends and he just walked in the door and walked straight up to me for some reason. At the time I was like 22 or 23 and I looked really young. Um, so maybe he just picked me out cause I looked like I was 14, mm-hmm. but he came directly up to me and started asking, he said, what's your name? And I said, Kale. And then when we went to the bar to get my ID, it said, Robert. Kale Lammerts on it, and they said I gave the wrong name.
0: They said you gave the wrong name, but then he looked at the ID and he still right. wrote you That's right, which is ridiculous. Right?
1: Yeah. Um,
0: what was that cop, just like? Was that a fine, or what happened with that?
1: Uh, I ended up getting arrested, and the cop that authorized the arrest, so the sergeant that was that was on scene, but another officer actually did the arresting. But the sergeant that authorized it ended up getting a demotion and a five thousand dollar a year pay cut because of it.
0: Well, that's some justice.
1: A little bit, yeah, yeah, yeah. It ended really? up blacklisting me in that town, and I had to move. But
0: well, that's after nice.
1: that, they raided my apartment without a warrant and arrested me, and I was constantly getting pulled over, and uh, and it just got to the point to where I just I was basically being harassed all the time. And I mean, I got a speeding ticket while I was sitting on my couch, eating a sandwich. Um,
0: so which, they just went and, on and I took,
1: and I took that one to court and lost.
0: So how, what happened there?
1: Um, so I had, I had been coming down the street, coming home from work and I pull into my house and I get out and I go in and I, it, this was back when there was answering machines and, uh, I went and checked the messages on the answering machine and I went and made a sandwich and I went to the back refrigerator to get a soda. And you know, that feeling you get when someone's looking at you, Mm -hmm. I, I had a feeling that somebody was looking at me and I turned around and a cop was standing in my garage and I just opened the door. I was like, can I, can I help you? And he goes, can you, can you come outside for a second? I said, yeah, sure. Not a problem. And I walked out there and he started asking me for my license and registration to which I said, no, man, I'm not, I'm not giving you that you're on my property illegally. I haven't done anything, you know, and it eventually got to where he called a sergeant over and the guy said, look, man, you're either going to have to sign this ticket for speeding or we're going to have to take you to jail. So I reluctantly signed it because I didn't know all my rights at the time. I was young. I was in my early twenties, I believe. And, uh, and so I signed it and I took it to court. I was, you know, easy win. I don't need a lawyer. I don't need anything. This is going to be cakewalk. He didn't even catch me in my car. And I told the judge the whole story and it was ruled uh, a legal ticket. And I had to pay the fine plus court (laughs) costs.
0: So what did the, I'm assuming the police officer was there and also testified. Yeah. 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 So they don't what show did, up, what they did he say? Like, out. what was his story? What did he say happened?
1: Uh, he said that he saw me speeding coming down the street um, and didn't tag me with his radar, but could tell I was speeding and could tell it was me. Cause I brought it up. I said, dude, how do you know it was even me in the car? And he said he could see me and there's no way from where he said he was sitting, which was like 200 yards away. Mm -hmm. that he could have been able to see my face in any identifiable way.
0: Oh man. Yeah. You have, you've had some crazy experiences with police officers. I I definitely have.
1: I definitely have. And those are just, you know, some of the bigger ones.
0: Anything else from either the interview or just on policing in general that you'll, you'd like to speak to before I let you go?
1: Sure. I actually, I actually did come across another libertarian cop today on Mm -hmm. Facebook Um, and I had one guy that was telling him that he needed to quit the force. And I, I said, no man, stay in there. If you're telling the truth and this is the way you're policing and you're not you're going after people, you know, victim crimes, not victimless crimes, stay in the force, spread it around to your fellow officers that this is what they're doing is immoral. And this is how they should be policing. This is the proper way to be quote unquote Mm -hmm. policing. Um, and, uh, and he was pretty receptive on that. So, and he's, he's like in the transition of becoming kind of a libertarian anarchist type guy, um, from the conversation that I had. So, but what I would tell people is, uh, if, if you're not prepared for a a conversation with a cop, don't do it. Just try to get out of there alive. Mm -hmm. Um, but if you're, if you're willing to do it, get a good conversation down, find a way, you know, (laughs) practice it or whatever. And, uh, ask what I tell people to lead off with is ask the police officer if if you can have a conversation with them. You know, you want to, you want to enter it all with respect, ask them if they're willing to have a conversation with you about freedom. And if they say yes, say, do you have rights that I don't have? And then depending on their answer, guide the conversation. I actually had, the the chance recently to have those conversations with a few officers and I got them to think, and I should have been by any other measure arrested at the time. And I got away with warnings.
0: So, so not so we don't have to go down every, every, uh, right. you know, path on that question, but so say a cop come back, comes back and says, yes, I have rights. You don't have, where, where do you go from there? Um,
1: well, I had a cop that said, um, I've been granted the authority by the state of Texas. And I said, okay well, does the state of Texas own my rights? And, uh, you know, I saw him start thinking and I said, do you believe this is a free country? And he said, yes. And I said, then what are we doing here? I haven't done anything violent. There's, there's nothing I'm doing. I'm just traveling. And I see, I see no purpose in us even interacting. Um, and it, to which his response was something along the lines of, you know, I've pulled people over and found out they had warrants or whatever. And I said, look, just because there's bad people in the world doesn't mean that I get less rights. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have to just make them think about what they do for a living and what rights are. I mean, you have to you have to have that conversation. What do you think rights are and who do you think has them? Um but I definitely don't encourage people to try to force this conversation if you're not ready for it. Cause it yeah, could go, you, it could go bad.
0: You catch a cop on a bad day. It might not matter what you say. Or, or just the wrong
1: type of police officer. You know, those meatheads that were bullied in high school that, you know, are just there the hammer looking for the nail,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, you know, and it's hard to tell which ones those are. So I just That's try awesome. to interact with them with a level of respect you know, just seeing them as a human first that hopefully took the job to do good and mm-hmm. somewhere lost their way or lost their moral compass or whatever. And we just got to get them back on path.
0: Right.
1: I mean, cause in a free society, in a libertarian society, we would still have a voluntary police force or a, you know, voluntarily funded police force. There's still going to be cops. So, you know, we have to, Change the minds of the people that are going to be doing this job.
0: Yeah, there's still there still needs people are going to want to defend their their property, their life, their family. Um, that's not going anywhere. So, yeah, if you take away the coercive funding, you still have the demand for the services.
1: Right, right. And I, you know, that's I've told so. people, you know, as long as it's voluntarily funded, people can form whatever authoritarian structure they want, mm-hmm. as long as the people that are inside of that authoritarian structure consent to it. That's my problem with government or with anything it all comes down to consent.
0: Yeah, that that's more I think libertarians often not to get off on a tangent but get confused <laughs> between the difference between government which I think I sort of categorize that as always being coercive and governance which governance can be a you know a consensual agreement between neighbors everyone uses HOA. The, the HOA example but it's a it's an example that's that happens. <laughs>
1: Yeah. Yeah. I had that conversation with somebody recently. I said, in an anarchist world, would you prevent people from forming an HOA because it's a type of government? Mm -hmm. Um, And they wouldn't admit that it was a type of government. I said, well, you're just getting lost on the meaning of words. Yeah.
0: yeah, If you get into semantics like that, then what's if people are going to get hung up on that, you can't even have a conversation.
1: Uh, Right. I mean, which, I mean, that's where you have to, I like the way that um, Steven Crowder does that. He'll, he'll get common ground with, okay, let's agree on a definition of this word and then take our conversation from there. Because if you're operating from different definitions of words, there's no way to be able to come together on, on the result of something.
0: Absolutely. All right, Kale. Well, before I do let you go, you did launch a new podcast, right? So I want to, have you plugged that and let people know where they can uh, listen to it and all that stuff?
1: I did. Uh, right now, it's a, it's kind of in purgatory uh, for logistical reasons. I'm trying to figure out some tech stuff, but I am going to be recording one tonight. It's called Conversations About Freedom. And you, right now, you can only find it on Anchor, Spotify, uh, Pocket Casts, and I think I just got a notification for Google Podcasts. Mm-hmm. So listen to it, download it, rate it, find me on Facebook at Moral Bob. Um, I'm on Twitter under the same name, uh, even though I don't go on Twitter, but I am there. Uh, That's about it.
0: Sounds good, man. Thank you for uh, coming on the show and helping to uh, put this show together.
1: Hey, thanks for having me and for everything you guys do, man.
0: Yeah. And thank you for your support for in the lines of Liberty Pride. Yeah, and our man. listeners out there can join and be just like Kale and produce the show and come on and talk about it. Um, you can do that by going to patreon.com slash lions of liberty. So, all right. Thank you, Kale. We'll see you. Thanks. Thank you for listening to today's show. Another great episode of Felony Friday. As you know, Felony Friday is one of three shows we have here on the Lions of Liberty podcast. Of course, we kick off every single week with our Monday show hosted by Mark Clare. It's our longest-running program, our flagship program, where Mark interviews leaders in the liberty movement. Every Wednesday, we have Electric Liberty Land hosted by Brian McWilliams. It's your weekly shot of culture, comedy, liberty, swearing, and just just good fun. Check that out. You can get all three shows by subscribing, subscribing, For the great price of $0 per month, you get everything that we have here. So please check everything out. And uh, if you like it all, please think about, consider supporting what we're doing here at Lions of Liberty. A great way to do that is by joining the Lions of Liberty Pride. You can do that by going to patreon.com slash lionsofliberty. Another great way of doing that is by uh, following, liking, sharing our stuff on Facebook, Instagram or Twitter. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash lines of Liberty on Instagram and Twitter. We are at lines of Liberty and the discussion forum where all the greatest and brightest minds go to, to talk about politics, Liberty, everything that's happening in the world today, current events, the lines of Liberty forum on Facebook, which you can find by typing lines of Liberty forum in the search bar at the top of Facebook, clicking search comes up say you want to join it answer a question bam you're in and the rest is just going to be a great journey for you so check that out that's all i have for today this is john odermatt signing off always remember to keep your head up and the fires of liberty burning